one of the things that happens whenever you have a missions trip, if, it's, if there's a good leader involved, is the leader is going to set some expectations up front. Hey, here's our expectations for the mission. Here's our expectations for us as a team, etc. Jesus, obviously, is the, the best leader. And we shared that in Luke chapter 9, the 12 that he chose a few chapters back, he's about to send them out on a mission to preach the kingdom of God, to heal and to cast out demons. But before he sent them out, like a good leader, all throughout chapter 8, he's prepping them for the mission. I want to show you a triangle real quick that we're going to refer to more in a couple weeks. Mike Breen says that every good church has three elements. Every Every church has an up element where we connect to God through worship and prayer and Bible study. There's an in element as we build relationships with each other. And there's an out element as we go into our community in the world and share what we're learning. In these next couple chapters, we're going to see all three of those in the lives of the disciples. But in chapter 8, what we really see is the up component. They're spending time with Jesus, learning, seeing, and growing all that they need so that they can go out and do the mission. And we can go back to a blank screen for just a moment. He's going to set the expectations for the mission, as we started to share last week. You remember the, the parable about the sower? What were the expectations that he was laying for them? He was laying that, hey, some of them are going to reject what you say. Uh, some of them are going to be shallow, and as soon as it gets hard, they're going to run away from what you've shared with them. Some of them are going to be choked out by the worries and riches and pleasures of this life. But guess what? Some of them are going to believe. They're going to receive and they're going to produce a crop a hundred times what was sown. They're going to tell other people about me. They're going to praise God. They're going to plant churches. They're going to bear fruit like love and joy and peace. That was the expectations for the mission Today we're going to see him setting the expectations for them as a team. Now I personally know what this is like. Some of you know this story. When me and Carolyn were 18 or 19 years old, we were dating. And we, we lived in Ohio. And there was a pastor that wanted to take us on a missions trip to Arizona. We had never been to Arizona before. And the plan was to go to the Navajo Reservation up north. And so... He was setting the expectations for the team. And one of the things that he said was, on this trip, there is no dating. Okay. If you're dating, it's not going to show on this trip. We all agreed, all right. Came out to Arizona, and, you know, we grew up in Ohio. You know, there's something about the mountains and the rocks and the, the beauty of Arizona that's just very captivating, right? So one day up on the Navajo reservation, me and Carolyn decided, let's take a walk. Enjoy this beauty. Take it in. And I'll be honest, along the way, we, we ended up smooching a little bit, okay? It was, it was romantic, right? <laughs> now what we didn't know was that somebody else on the team wasn't too far behind us on the trail and saw us and told the leader of the trip. Yeah, 
So that evening, you know, every evening we had a team meeting. Before we walked into the meeting, the leader of the trip said, hey, uh, I got some news today. Well, tell me what happened on the trail. <laughs> Red face. Yeah, we were dating. He said, I want you to apologize to the team tonight for breaking our expectations. <laughs> Talk about an awkward meeting. You know, we had to sit there and tell them we, we broke the expectations. Sorry. Now, I think I've still got some growing to do because I can't tell you that I totally regret it even to this day. <laughs> God's still working on me. But it's good to have clear expectations for a team when they're going to go out on a mission. Jesus is going to do that for them. And two of the expectations he's going to put on them, he didn't say anything about dating. But he did say, you must spread my word. You must share it. And you must do my word. Those are two of the expectations that he laid on his team. You must share it, and you must do it. And we're going to get one example today where he's going to take them on a faith-building adventure, a real-life situation. Because isn't that where our faith is really tested? It's not, not when we're hearing it. It's, it's when we're thrown into the, the fires of life. So he's going to teach them also to trust his word. Spread my word, do my word, trust my word. All along the way in this training, you've heard it a number of times already, there's a focus on His Word. His Word is living and active and powerful, and it is at the center of our mission as we go, just as it was for them. So let's look first at His first two expectations for them. The first one was spread His Word. Verse 16, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Such a great picture because nobody does that, right? Nobody lights a candle and, and puts it under a bed. What's he talking about here? He's saying, look, my word is the light that this dark world needs. It's the hope that they need. They're lost in darkness. They cannot find their way. I want you to share that. In the parable of the sower, he told them, his disciples, he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. He could say that to us too. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you in his word. You know how hard it is to keep a really good secret? I'll never forget a year or two ago when my dad retired after years at Ford. And we knew my dad, every time he comes out west, like he, he thinks he's a cowboy just for a couple weeks. All right, so he, 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 he wants to go gold panning, there's something about the West and my dad that he just loves. And so we, we all got this idea, like there's the Blazing M Ranch. Have you ever been there out in Cottonwood? It, great place. You go out there and there's this little Western town where you can shoot a, uh, a gun with wax bullets at some targets. There's all these shops and saloons. And then at the end of your time walking around, you get to go in and have a cowboy dinner. And while you're sitting there, 
after you go through the cowboy kitchen with your beans and your chicken, they, they have uh, cowboys up there singing songs and doing skits. And we want to take them there and my mom as a retirement present. Well, I tell you, uh, we were going to give it to them on Christmas Day, and, and we did. But they got here like five days before Christmas. I cannot tell you how hard it was. There were like three or four times where that almost came out of my mouth. I wanted to tell him so bad because I knew he would love to hear it. It's hard to keep a good secret. Jesus is saying that's how it should be with what I've told you. All the things we know about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how to change the world, that should be something that is really difficult to keep inside. I want you to share that, he says. Luke 12, 48, Jesus says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Did you know it's a very solemn thing to sit here and receive God's word, to open your Bible at home and receive it? Because the more we know, the more we're responsible for, the more we have the privilege of going out. If you don't believe Jesus when he says that, even Uncle Ben in Spider-Man told Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> he goes on, he says, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Remember when he's talking about listening, it's not just going in and bouncing around on the eardrum, it's receiving, believing. Consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what they think they have will be taken from them. There's some sobering words. What I, what I read there is keep your heart in the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep it receptive and soft to what God is teaching you through his word. Do not let your heart grow hard and prideful and calloused to it. Do not let it become merely academic either. When I went to Moody Bible Institute, I remember showing up as a freshman and I met some seniors that were so cold and bitter towards God. And it scared me. They had been at Moody Bible Institute studying his word for four years and they were so cynical and hard-hearted and pride. And I remember thinking, I never want to get there. Ironically, after some time there, I went through two years of a crisis where I was on the verge of going there myself. I began to question. And I knew I was either going to turn away and become proud like they had and cynical, or I was going to trust Jesus with all I had and follow him. What had happened for many of them as I talked with them is it, is it just became academic. They, they read and read and read and took it in, and it stayed here. It never went here and maybe more importantly, it never went here. One mentor in my life told me, look, as a receiver of God's word, you've got two choices. One is to become a swamp. Take in, take in, take in, and just keep it all there. Never let it change your life. Never share it with anyone. He said, that's what will happen if you keep filling your head with knowledge and you don't obey it, you don't share it. Anybody been next to a swamp or a part of a pond that's covered with algae and the breeze blows and you smell that stench? He said, that's what we become. 
when we take it in, but we don't pass it out. The other option is to be like a river that's constantly flowing, a spring, bringing blessing to others with what we've learned. That's a question we all need to wrestle with this morning. Am I a swamp or am I a life-giving river in the power of the Holy Spirit? Share his word was one of his clear expectations. But it didn't stop there. He goes on to tell him, I expect you to do what my word says. Look at the rest of the passage here. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. But they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. How many of you grew up in a large family? A couple of you? Jesus grew up in a large family. All right, we know that he had at least four brothers and two sisters. Do you know that? We know that because his brothers are named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And it says that he had sisters. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your oldest brother? <laughs> I mean, how many of you, of you like it when your parents see your brother as perfect? <laughs> or your sibling? Well, Jesus never did that. <laughs> Jesus never said that, James. That could uh, spark some jealousy, couldn't it? Some rivalry. I don't know if that's part of what was behind his family not, not receiving who he was. But Mark 3 tells us that, it says, Jesus entered a house. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. <laughs> Many in his own family looked at Jesus, and, and they weren't like, yeah, he's the Messiah. They're like, he's crazy. <laughs> so... His mothers and brothers come, they're looking for him. Look at his reply in verse 21. He says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word. Does it stop there? No, hear God's word, and what, what does it say? Put it into practice. Warren Wearsby said, it's easy to think we're spiritual because we listen to one preacher after another, take notes, mark our Bibles, but if we never really practice what we learn, we're only fooling ourselves. Walter Liefeld says, Hours of praying and reading the Bible will not bring disobedient Christians as close to the Lord as doing his truth brings even the simplest believer. I read that, and I know that's a constant growing process, isn't it? Not only hearing, but living out what God has put before us. Not only are we responsible to share it, we're responsible to do it. I saw a great example of this with some folks in our missional community. Part of the goal of the, the missional communities in our church is to take what we're learning and processing and to live it out together, to do it. We were talking a couple weeks ago and praying, and, and somebody in the group suggested, hey, wouldn't it be great if we... We put together these blessing bags for, for homeless people so that when we drive past them, we can just hand them one. And, you know, we, they start a dream together. What could go in there? Toothpaste, toothbrushes. Let's put a letter in there with, of encouragement, some scripture. I'll, I'll get the bags. I'll, I'll get the hand wipes. I'll get the hand warmers. And on Wednesday this week, we're getting together and we're going to do that. And there's such a joy in that. There's such a joy in taking what we know God says about his love for the homeless people, 
for the, for the, the disenfranchised, the poor, and putting it into action. That's a key part of living our life for Jesus. Somebody brought in 30 tubes of toothpaste this morning. <laughs> I've seen many of you jump on meal trains for the families with new babies. That's part of living it out, loving each other, being there for each other. I see it when you're here every week setting up and leading worship and teaching kids and all the things that come together for this church. I see so much living it out. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Something about James, the brother of Jesus, is interesting. How many of you knew that he was the one that wrote the book of James in the New Testament? You see, he may have thought Jesus was out of his mind before he died and rose again, but something can change when your brother rises from the dead. Okay. Like, oh, yeah, you weren't joking around. He wrote, in his epistle years later, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. He got it. He got it. He became not only a, a blood half-brother of Jesus, but a real spiritual brother of his. He went on to write in verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. But we know that this wasn't just writing for James, okay? He became a key leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Did you know that? Do you know that Acts chapter 1 says that Mary and Jesus' brothers were in that upper room with the disciples praying before the Holy Spirit came? Near the end of his life, historians said that his knees resembled those of a camel because the skin on his knees became calloused from spending hours each day in prayer. I, I read that, and I just wonder if he's trying to make up for lost time. If he's thinking back like, man, I remember all that time I wrote my brother off. Now I believe he's that high priest that I can speak to my father through. I'm not going to miss this opportunity anymore. Josephus says uh, James was eventually accused by the high priest and condemned to death by stoning Eusebius, the historian, says the scribes and Pharisees took James to a public place, the top of a wing of the temple, and demanded that he should renounce the faith of Jesus Christ before all the people. But rather than deny Jesus, James, quote, declared himself fully before the whole multitude and confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, our Savior and Lord. One other historian said they went up and threw down James from the temple height and said to each other, let us stone him. And they began to stone him for he was not killed by the fall. But as they stoned him, he knelt down and said, I entreat thee, Lord God, our Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not only remembering what his brother had said, but walking in his footsteps One of them took a club and struck him on the head, and thus he suffered martyrdom. Leads me to ask the question today, am I a doer of the word, or have I limited my walk with God to reading, praying, and going to church? Now he's going to take him on a faith-building adventure. It's like we said, life is where it's tested, right? 
It's where the lessons are really driven home. Do I really believe what I just heard from Jesus? Let's, let's test it out. Let's take it out of the package and get it dirty. Let's see. Let's see. Wiersbe said, faith must be tested before it can be trusted. He went on to say, Satan does not care how much Bible truth we learn so long as we do not live it. Truth that is only in the head is purely academic and never will get into the heart until it is practiced by the will. God drives it into our will sometimes through the circumstances of life if we'll receive it. He's going to encourage them to trust his word. Don't just share it. Don't just do it, but trust it. And I believe this one's key because if we trust it, we will share it. We will do it. But if we don't trust it, why would we do the other two? So let's jump in. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Now, I never thought of this uh, as many times as I've read this passage, but commentator after commentator after commentator said that alone coming from Jesus was an invitation to believe him. When he said, we're going to cross the lake, they should have believed. We're going to get across the lake. Just like when he tells the early church, you're going to spread my gospel, not just here, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's going to happen. When, when he tells you, you're forgiven, and I will bring you safely to eternity because of what I've done for you, it's going to happen. This was an opportunity for them to trust his word, just in that simple statement. Let us go over to the other side of the lake. What promises has he made to us in his word that are opportunities to trust him today? So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Many of you know some of the geography over there. There were hills and mountains around this Sea of Galilee and often cold air would swoop down to where the sea was 600 feet below sea level and we know what happens when cool air meets warm air there'll be these crazy storms and sometimes we think if a, a sea or a lake is shallow it can't be that bad well lake erie is the great lake that we grew up on it's the shallowest of the great lakes it's also one of the dangerous most dangerous because when the wind and storms do come it doesn't take as long for a shallow lake to get really stirred up there are many shipwrecks in the shallowest of the Great Lakes for that reason. They were in great danger in this squall. And one of the things we see here that many pointed out, you see this great contrast. There's this crazy storm. You can imagine the frantic activity of the disciples. Then you see the peace of Jesus. What's he doing? He's sleeping. God is not freaking out in the middle of our storms. He's not like, I did not see that coming. I didn't know that bill was coming. I didn't know they were going to lose that job. I didn't know that illness was coming. He's not freaking out. He's in control. He's at peace in the middle of our storms. The disciples weren't thinking that. They're they're thinking what what we would think. They went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. One other gospel says, Don't you care? That we're going to drown. How many of us have felt that when we're feeling helpless and hopeless and fearful for our lives? Don't you even care, God? He got up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. With just a word, 
he looks at this raging storm and it calms instantly. Now normally, if you've ever been on the, the ocean or a lake, it takes hours for those waves to settle down, right? Instantly. The word rebuked here is interesting. If you know what's going to happen next when they get to the other side, they're going to meet a demon-possessed man that Jesus is going to set free. We'll talk more about that later. word rebuked here is the same word that it says he does to demons. I rebuke you, leave him. Some have wondered if this storm was originated by Satan's doing in an attempt to keep Jesus from setting free this captive that he had had so long. Either way, Jesus rebuked the storm. He has complete control over nature. And what does he say to their response? Does he say, listen, guys, I understand how you feel. I'm sorry. I was just tired. <laughs> I won't do it again. No, he says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Tim Keller talks about how many of us have a faulty premise in our lives that we need to let go of. Faulty premise goes like this. If Jesus loves me, he won't let bad things happen to me. That's a lie. Okay? What he says about Jesus here is that Jesus was more unmanageable than the storm itself. But a storm doesn't love you. For Jesus, not only is his power unbounded, but also his wisdom and his love for what he allows into our lives. He says, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons you can't understand. It says, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This question right here is the real climax of the story. We'd like to think it's the calming of the storm or the storm itself. Jesus is teaching them, remember, and they're growing in their understanding of who this guy is. Is, is he a good teacher? Is he a prophet? And they see power here that, that even all the ancient cultures around them agreed that only God can control the sea. And they watch it. And they say, who is this? Tim Keller reminds us, he didn't even say, in the name of God, I command you to be still. He just says it. Because he is the God-man. This is the same power of God in the Old Testament at Exodus, at the Red Sea. Same power in Psalm 107. It says, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. He's growing their faith. He wants them to see the power of his word. Wants them to wrestle with the same question he wants us to wrestle with this morning. Do you trust his word? 
Do you share his word? Do you do his word? Now, in just a moment, we're going to have a prayer time where I'm going to invite you to have a conversation with God. Based on the last of those, do you trust his word? Because, like I said, the other two, sharing and doing, flow out of that trust. And we're going to build the, the conversation with God around the three questions in the story of the storm at sea. The first of three prayer times, each will last just a couple minutes. I want us to wrestle with that question, don't you care if we drown? those moments when we feel helpless and hopeless, the, the way it might come out of our hearts or our mouths or what we think is, God, do you really care about me? And I don't know if there's somebody here wrestling with that very real emotion this morning, but I want to give you two minutes to talk to God about that. Do you really care about me? But don't just talk. Share your honest feelings and listen. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will remind you of the truth of, of all the things that I've said. Share your heart with him if you're in that place of questioning and then listen for a few moments. I want to move on to allow God to ask you a question from his word. The same question Jesus asked his disciples, where is your faith? Allow him to look into your heart. And I don't believe Jesus asked this out of malice. He asked it out of love because he knew that faith in anything other than himself would fall short. Do you really trust Jesus? this morning what are you trusting in allow him to explore your heart talk with him for a moment
lead us into their, their question after the, the sea was calmed. Who is this who controls even the wind and the waves? And I want to ask you, how is your perception of Jesus this morning? Because just like those disciples, we can, we can grow in that. You know, is he just a good guy? good teacher is he a prophet sent from God or is he the king of kings and lord of lords who speaks a word and even the wind and the waves obey ask him to reveal himself prepare for a time of communion where we remember Christ's death for our sins. I want to share one more quote from Tim Keller. So Jesus would say to you, someday I'm going to calm all storms, still all waves. I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness. I'm going to kill death. How can he do that? He can do it only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm. Under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death, Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm was not calmed, not until it swept Jesus away. He goes on to say, if he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in the much smaller storms you're facing right now? 
you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know he loves you. You will know he cares. You will have his power to handle anything.